Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, Australia's chief scientist, Kathy Foley, talks about her country's billion-dollar quantum strategy. But first, I think it's safe to say that the holy grail of condensed matter physics is the discovery of a material that's a superconductor at room temperature and at ambient pressure. Therefore, our interest was piqued last month when the news broke of a material that is said to be a superconductor at temperatures above room temperature. Physics World's Margaret Harris has investigated the claim, and here she is in conversation with a material scientist who tried to confirm the discovery. When a team of scientists in Korea announced in late July that they discovered a material that conducts electricity without resistance at room temperature and ambient pressure, it attracted a lot of attention. Shortly afterwards, dozens of other researchers set up to try to replicate these results, and today I'm speaking with one of them. His name is Ross Coleman, and his bio page at Charles University in Prague, Czechia, describes him as a materials scientist traversing the terrifying middle ground between solid-state chemistry and condensed matter physics. Hello, Ross. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks very much for inviting me. So what is this middle ground you're talking about, and why is it terrifying? Uh, it's terrifying mostly because of the, the language differences between physicists and chemists. I think uh, so. So I did my PhD in chemistry and my undergraduate in chemistry, but I now work in a physics department. And throughout my career, there, there's always a slight disconnect between the understanding of physicists and chemists when you're dis discussing material properties. And I, I, I think that's, that's the terrifying thing, sitting down in a room with a bunch of physicists and knowing you're likely to have some, so a few aspects lost in translation along the way. Yeah. I see. Okay. So let's talk a bit more about superconductivity. Um, so when this team of scientists in Korea put a paper on the archive print server in which they claimed to have made a room temperature superconductor, why was this so exciting? Why did you and others sort of leap on this and say, hey, I'm going to go out and try to replicate that claim? Yeah, so I think especially in, in material science or superconducting uh, sort of research, one of the, the longstanding goals has always been to try and make a room temperature ambient pressure superconductor. Like really, when I try to explain any of my research to to laymen, so normal members of the public, they, they're always asking, but what's the goal? What's the goal? And, and it always has to be a room temperature superconductor because... Uh, because ultimately, if anyone ever discovers this, it's going to completely change the way the economics of the world works. I mean, so much of our power um, it is wasted just in, for example, energy transfer from, from, uh, from our reactors or, or from our electricity sources to our homes um, or in just general heating up of electronics. The, the fact your laptops get hot on your lap means it's wasting energy to create heat when it could be just using a much smaller amount of energy just to do the work it needs to do. And superconductors would allow that. So, so I, I think as soon as, as soon as the paper came out where someone said they'd achieved it, everyone that's interested in this topic at all is going to go straight to the lab and try to reproduce it. And so that's, that's primarily why we wanted to. I mean, it, it became a really obvious choice the moment we started reading the paper and seeing how simple their 
their uh, uh, their synthetic root was. So it, it really just used chemicals that we had available in the lab straight away and, and almost any chemistry or, or material science department is going to have the same same chemicals accessible um, that are not cheap, not, uh, sorry, they're not expensive, they're not too toxic. Um, and the synthetic methods they, they suggested were, were very simple for, for any material science lab. Um, so much of the research into uh, high temperature superconductivity it has been focused in recent years on having to apply very high pressures to materials. Um, so, so a lot of the research recently is done inside diamond anvil cells, so where you can go to uh, tens of thousands of atmospheres of pressure um, to, to achieve these extraordinary states of matter, so this superconductivity. But uh, that means that you're never really going to be able to use those materials that are doing it under these pressures in everyday applications. Um, or the other way around is rather than applying lots and lots of pressure, you have to go to very low temperatures. And so, so to have a material that potentially can have these properties without having to go to these extremes uh, was, was just too exciting to, to let pass by. So you had the materials and you had the equipment needed. What did what did you do then? What were some of the talk me through some of the steps? Uh, what what did the paper tell you, and what did you have to sort of try to figure out for yourself? Yeah, so the, the paper mentions uh, essentially three steps in the synthesis, and the first two of these you can actually do at the same time anyway. So so uh, as long as you've got a couple of furnaces available. So the the first step is just mixing uh, what was it lead oxide and lead sulfate. Um, mix those together so they're just they're both sort of uh, a yellowish powder and a white powder um, they're stable in air so that you don't have any sort of significant risks that they're gonna um, they're gonna sort of burn up in the air or anything like this so you just mix them together in a mortar and pestle um, put them inside a, a quartz tube so we use quartz because it has a a very high melting point so we can put it inside furnaces at high temperature and it's not going to melt but also uh, it has a uh, a low coefficient of thermal expansion, which means it doesn't sort of shatter if you give it a thermal shock, like a Pyrex dish, for example, at home. If you drop that in water, then it will shatter. But quartz uh, doesn't do that. If you take it straight out of the furnace and put it in cold water, it's no problem. So we tend to use quartz. And so you put this powder inside the quartz tube, suck out all of the air using a vacuum pump, um, and then seal it using a blowtorch, basically. So, so we seal it, uh, and the first step I can't remember the temperature, maybe 550 degrees, um, but we put it in the furnace for, for a couple of days. So, so that f first one. Uh, the second one is copper and phosphorus. So you take some metallic copper powder, some phosphorus powder, and again, exactly the same, mix them together inside a mortar and pestle, seal it inside a quartz tube and put it inside a furnace. Um, so both of those, as long as you've got two different furnaces that can be at different temperatures, uh, they can be happening at the same time. Um, and once you've done those first two steps, you, you take those tubes out, um, break them open, and have a look at the material you've got. So typically, you'd want to check the quality of the material that they've produced to make sure uh, you're, you're not sort of continuing on with following steps with something that hasn't fully reacted or is impure. So we then take those powders, grind them up, um, do something called X-ray powder diffraction, and that tells us, uh, it gives us information about what's in that powder. So, so the atomic structure, or if there's a mixture of different things in the powder, then we can see it using the X-ray diffraction. Um, and if they both look good, look pure, then we take a mixture of those two powders. Again, grind them up, 
uh, in a simple mortar and pestle, put them inside another tube, and then stick that in the furnace. Um, so the difficulties in this synthesis were that they didn't describe all of the details of some of these steps. So although they mentioned the temperatures that they went to in the furnace, they didn't tell, uh, mention how fast or slow they heated these samples. Um, equally, uh, because the, uh, there's a, a whole load of by byproducts in the final step, um, and a lot of those byproducts are quite volatile, so sulfur will be coming off, uh, coming off the, the powder as you heat it up, but it's trapped inside this quartz tube. Um, things like the exact dimensions of the tube can be quite important because they'll change the, the overall pressure of, of, or the partial pressure of sulfur inside that tube as you heat it up. And especially because we didn't know exactly what the supposed superconducting material might be, um, it could be due to impurities or, or some byproducts that are produced that could change depending on the exact partial pressure of, for example, sulfur in that mixture. Um, so there's, there's sort of a few different details that seem to be sort of missing from that initial paper. Um, and it, it's not completely uncommon for those kind of details to be missing from uh, uh, within, within the method sections of papers. Um, but it, it just made it a bit frustrating when, when you want to quickly go and run to the lab and, and reproduce exactly what they've done to observe this amazing properties. Um, and especially when you don't observe those properties, you start to question, okay, but did they do something different to me? Um, and of course, when everyone's trying to do this, everyone's getting the same frustration. Um, so, so when you make really extraordinary claims like they made in this paper, and you know everyone's going to want to rush to the lab, then that's when it's uh, really important to be as specific as you, as you can be. So you not only went through this, this process, this heating um, different types of materials that have been meshed together and then and then combining them. You also chose to do it in public with one of your colleagues um, at Charles University was, was live tweeting or live posting um, each step in the process. Why did you decide to do that? Um, I, I think mostly to just get some public engagement. So, so uh, within the university, we, we, there's an expectation that we'll try and engage with the public as much as possible in general. Um, and especially physics is something that uh, you don't often tend to have so many opportunities for really good public engagement. Of course, you can go around to schools and do some demos sometimes, but this is something that was beginning to appear in the news, uh, was, was obviously going to attract a lot of attention, um, had the possibility of really changing the way the world works if, it, if it's true and was repeatable. Um, and so we just saw it as a chance to, to try and engage with as much of the public as possible during, during our experimentation. Um, I, I think especially as well, uh, we, we knew that many other groups are gonna be trying to reproduce this and that there was already active discussions of people trying to reproduce this on Twitter. So we just wanted to be part of it and, and sort of be part of the interesting journey of trying to, trying to repeat this and see what's going on. Um, it's not always the case because, especially when you're doing very high impact science, when uh, you know you're in competition with other groups to publish things and, and kind of stamp your name on it and say, I did that first. Uh, quite often, it, it's common for people to try and uh, maybe hide a little bit of what they're doing or, or not, not mention it because they might give away sort of trade secrets to other people that they're in competition with. But this seemed like something that was so important. Um, and because there were so many variables in, in the way that it was uh, sort of described in, in the original paper, that I, I thought maybe 
it, it seemed like something that was fairly simple, fairly fun, and that if we were we were lucky enough to get uh, some some good material or some some active product out, then it, it, it's something we wanted to share with as many people as possible at the same time. So I think mostly we just uh, because. I was still skeptical right from the beginning whether or not it was going to be real. Um, so, so I just wanted, I think it, we just saw it as an opportunity to really just have some fun whilst we're trying to reproduce this without too much of an expectation that we were going to discover anything too, too new at the same time. So what did you find when you, when you finished this, this sample, this multi-day process of heating and combining materials? What happened? So there were still a few steps because uh, the first time it, it didn't work. Um, so for us, uh, actually, it turned out the, the reason it didn't work was a, a, a mistake of a calculation that I did early on. So, uh, so I made some mass calculations wrong and, uh, and prepared my copper phosphate, phosphide wrong. Uh, so, so then we had to go back and kind of restart the process from, from the beginning anyway. Um, but uh, quite quickly, we realized uh, that the... Uh, the product being prepared was actually a liquid at high temperature. So, so the reaction is happening at 925 degrees. Um, and the melting point of the, the supposed superconducting material is definitely below that. So uh, it becomes a liquid. And that, that's a problem uh, if you've got your material just directly in contact with the quartz. Because um, as I mentioned before, quartz is really good because it has this low coefficient of thermal expansion, which means it doesn't change size as you heat it and cool it. But other things do. And so if you've got this liquid um, that then forms a solid as you're cooling it down on the surface of the quartz, and it wants to contract, but it's stuck to the quartz, um, that has the chance then of breaking the quartz as it's cooling down. Um, and that's what we observed in some of our first trials. So we knew immediately we were going to have to change some of the ways we were doing it. So um, we then went to much thicker, thicker walled quartz, so it'd be much, much stronger. So typically we, we use, uh, I think, uh, one millimeter thickness in our walls of quartz, and we went up to two, and then that happily survived. Um, but it's those kind of mistakes that you have to make along the way that slow things down and, and make things less fun when you're trying to interact with the public. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I'm sure many other groups face the same problems. Um, so, so again, describing, describing all of those details in, in, your, um, in your method section of your papers can help avoid those problems. Um, but yeah, so we, we initially sort of realized it was becoming molten, so we had to move to thicker quartz. Um, but then we also had to, uh, so the first attempts, again, didn't work. So some groups around the world were saying they could see some particles that seemed to be reacting to a magnet under a microscope. So immediately suggesting that they might be uh, magnetic in some way, uh, either ferromagnetic, which we don't want, or diamagnetic, which uh, if it's strongly diamagnetic, it's some suggestion that it could be a superconductor. Um, so if it's repelled by a magnet. So if something's moving under the microscope, then you know uh, you, can, you can figure out something is happening or something's happened that you weren't expecting. Um, so we, we noticed, or well, we didn't notice anything in our material that was reacting to a magnet. So that's when we had to start playing around with different parameters. Um, so our, uh, we tried uh, some different cooling rates. So either taking out the furnace and dropping it straight into cold water or allowing it to cool slowly as the furnace cools down. Uh, in case they were important parameters in producing these, these sort of very special properties. Um, and they didn't seem to work at all. Uh, and then 
uh, we we saw some discussions on Twitter that maybe actually these really special properties only came from a tube that had been cracked. I don't know if it was a story that someone made up, or uh, uh, but they, they were suggesting that actually the Koreans had a cracked tube that they then discovered these amazing properties. So, so potentially having a little bit of oxygen or air mixed in might have been super important as well. So then on our next batch, we, we tried a bunch of different things. So uh, I tried uh, heating some up directly in air, um, and that just... Uh, led to a completely different product, a big mess, uh, just sort of looked like charcoal, basically. Um, I uh, tried another tube where we allowed a, a small amount of air inside, so about a fifth of an atmosphere of air. Um, a third tube that was, again, just directly under vacuum, but with this thick glass wall. Uh, and a fourth tube, uh, exactly the same as the third tube, but much longer, in case the size of the tube was, was a really important factor. Um, so we tried all four of them, and uh, and besides the one that was completely in air, again all the products, uh, no reaction to a magnet whatsoever, um, just yeah, completely unsuccessful um, in in terms of observing the the properties that we were hoping for. Um, yeah, the the other thing we noticed for sure was that uh, the the materials were not uh, were not pure at all. So. In the initial paper, they, they give a, a simple reaction scheme of you, you have this lanakite, which is the mixture of lead oxide and lead sulfate, and then you have your copper phosphide. You mix them together, and then you get just the product that you want, which was this lead, uh, this copper-doped lead uh, appetite. But the problem is, actually, if you try to balance that, that equation, it doesn't balance to give you just that product there's a whole load of extra materials left over. So there's some, some copper, some sulfur, some, uh, some lead left over. Um, and the problem is all of those are sealed in your quartz tube. And so, so we, we quite quickly discovered that when we're looking at our products, it's a, it's a big mess of a bunch of different things. Um, initially, that was kind of exciting because, uh, because we knew that the, the Korean group only saw some very small fragments of the active, supposedly superconducting material. Um, so, of course, our expectation is then, okay, so if it's only some tiny, tiny fragments, it's probably not the main phase that they're reporting. It could be from one of these byproducts or, or some, some minor impurity phase. Um, so it was kind of exciting that, okay, there is a bunch of other stuff in there, maybe maybe there, there is some real superconductivity just from one of these byproducts and you just have to tweak the conditions to reproduce it perfectly. Um, but, but yeah, we tried a bunch of these different attempts and, and so far haven't seen anything, uh, anything that reacts to a magnet positively, um, sort of, uh, that, that we'd be interested in further, further studying. Yeah. So it's, would you say it's a pretty much a bust then? Uh, I think for our lab at the moment, yeah. I, I think if there was more information, then then we'd we'd know which direction to chase. So so we we've sort of tried everything that we can think of as simple attempts at the moment, and, and haven't seen any promising results. If uh, if something come comes out in the near future where where uh, they realise that actually this the, these super properties came about because they did have an impurity that was somehow just changing the chemistry slightly. Or, uh, or it, this impurity was was the key element that uh, that led to these amazing properties. Then, then of course we can start searching again. But I think I, I think we've pretty much given up in our lab in terms of 
searching for superconductivity super using the recipe that, that we've got at the moment. So other than learning that this particular recipe doesn't work, or with at least certainly not, not without a lot more detail and maybe some ex explanation, other than that, what did you, did you learn anything useful from this, this experience of trying to replicate this result? Uh, I think I learned uh, how quickly theoreticians can jump on something. Um, I was really amazed at just how quickly calculations could be done when a promising material appeared. Um, so we, we didn't start replicating immediately after the Korean paper came out because uh, I was kind of initially skeptical about whether or not it, it had the, any chance of being real at all. Um, but then... Uh, it was it was some of the early theoretical papers that that came out suggesting that maybe it was really a possibility uh, that really prompted us to give it a go, um, and I, I think that's one of the things that I learned was just how quickly theoreticians can can do their calculations and, and can get some predictions on properties uh, when they're really motivated. Uh, in terms of our lab, uh, I'm not sure if we learned anything sort of too new from this. The the material science behind it was fairly simple. Um, so so uh, all of the techniques we were using are things that we're, we're quite quite used to sort of applying in material science already. So, yeah. Okay. And do you think that the publicity and you know, the sort of social media, you know, obviously you participated in, in posting your results on the social media. Do you think the publicity is about uh, these claims has been good for condensed matter physics or materials chemistry? Or has it been, you know, people are going to go, oh, oh, oh you, you've, you've produced another room temperature superconductor. Yeah, sure. Um, tell me another one. That, that sort of damaging um, situation for the field. Um, I think if it happened too frequently, it would be damaging. Uh, but in this case, I think it just sort of highlighted how important it would be if it really came about. Uh, because it, it was immediate that it was immediate, immediately obvious to the general public how quickly physicists got excited about it. Um, and so then, of course, the general public starts asking why. What, what, why would this be important? Why is everyone so excited? Uh, and you start to see what the possibilities would be if someone really did uh, discover a room temperature superconductor. Um, and the, I think the more, um, the more you show the general public what possibilities are out there if we, uh, if we hunt for them long enough and, and sort of work hard enough towards these goals, then, then they'll be a bit more interested in maybe agreeing to put a bit more money in science or, or kind of follow, follow these, these kind of general goals of, of material science. Because there's not a lot of publicity in, in condensed matter physics, I think, generally. Um, there, there's always a lot of kind of hype behind the energy sector or potentially making making new battery materials or, or sort of solid state energy sources. Um, but but the, the really fundamental stuff that doesn't necessarily have immediate applications doesn't get a lot of funding. So when I, I think it was generally a positive thing that more people were involved and sort of begin to understand that there is a lot of a lot of people out there working on on these kind of problems that could massively change the world if they're successful. But, uh, but so far, haven't, haven't found quite the right ingredients to, to achieve that. Yeah. So I think gen generally it was uh, a positive thing as long as it doesn't happen too often. Yeah. 
So best case scenario is some student out there, maybe still at school, maybe an undergraduate, sees this and decides, hey, I'm going to go out and find a real room temperature superinductor in my, my career. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or, or even just uh, keeping some of our undergraduates staying into scientific research, because uh, quite, quite often the, the undergrads, undergraduates have to decide, OK, now am I going to go into research or am I going to go into industry? And, and actually just staying in academia can be a really rewarding career um, because you're, you're, you're searching for, for these kind of solutions to, to unusual problems. And I, I think some of the undergraduates don't get the experience where they, they realize that these kind of career paths are available to them. Um, and, and you end up just going into, into industry because it seems like the only thing you can do. Um, but, but these kind of problems where it really highlights that there are opportunities out there to solve problems that people haven't solved yet, um, it, we, can, we can sort of keep people in academia that way as well. Yeah. Ross Coleman, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. That was Ross Coleman of Charles University in conversation with Margaret Harris. You can read more about this fascinating story in an article by Margaret on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Room Temperature Superconductor LK99 Fails Replication Tests. Around the world, companies large and small are creating quantum technologies such as computers, sensors, and cryptography systems. This development often relies on the cooperation between universities, industry, and governments. And this is why countries around the world are developing national quantum strategies. Australia is no exception, as Physics World's Mateen Durrani discovers in this interview with the country's chief scientist. So it's a real pleasure to be joined from Australia by Cathy Foley, a physicist who's currently Australia's chief scientist and recently launched the country's first national quantum strategy. Cathy is also editor-in-chief of the journal Superconductor Science and Technology, which is published by IOP Publishing, which, of course, publishes Physics World. Hi, Cathy. Hi, how are you? Very good. Um, well, before we start, Australia's chief scientist, that sounds a very sort of uh, fancy job. What, what, does, what do you do in that? What does a chief scientist do? Well, the chief scientist, I'm the chief science advisor to the prime minister and the Australian government. And my job is to make sure that uh, government has the best possible evidence-based information for them to make good decisions. So that's the first thing. And the second is to uh, be the champion for Australian science here and internationally. And then the third thing is to see how I can make sure that the research sector is as efficient, effective and impactful as possible. So I get to work on lots of different things and uh, it's quite exciting to see how many aspects of science are being picked up by government from whether it's energy transition, COVID response, uh, looking at the whole way we want to get the um, diversity of our and of our um, environment so that we've got biodiversity contained, uh, feral animals. I get to work on so many different areas of science. It's a very exciting job to have. 
Yeah, sounds fun. So to come back to the main point of our chat was about the national quantum strategy. Now, several countries, the UK, EU, China, uh, US have had quantum strategies and now Australia's joined the join the uh, uh, the club if you like so what was the what was the thinking of why does australia need a national quantum strategy because of course you are doing a lot of really good work i know that we followed it for many years on physics world and that's the reason why is uh to be honest it's pretty unusual for a country which is pretty small although we've got a big landmass it's about the same size of mainland usa we actually have the population of shanghai sprinkled across it well it's not even across the country it's uh it's mainly uh, in the, around the edges with a very few people in the middle. And so we've got 0.3% of the world's population. It's unusual for us to have such a big investment in quantum, tech, on quantum science for the last 20 plus years. In fact, Australia uh, has been doing some of the initial fundamental research in quantum going back to the 50s when you know, some of the very first fundamental science was done. Uh, we even had, for the physicists in the audience, um, part of, I came out of CSIRO, which is a government um, public funded agency, and uh, Guy White, who everyone might know from, uh, who has a handbook of cryogenics, and he wrote that, was in the team I, I, I was in at CSIRO for 36 years, and, and he was uh, an important member of that. So they've had a long history, uh, and then in about 2000, uh, Australia had some people coming together in the research sector, in the university sector, looking at the potential to create a quantum computer based on the uh, Bruce Kane idea of putting a single phosphorus atom in silicon and using that as, um, as a way of making a qubit. And so uh, the Australian um, physics community actually gathered around and over the next 23 years or so, they've had um, 15 different centres of excellence funded by the Australian Research Council and if you add in the in-kind and the um, leveraging that uh, state governments, because we've got a federal and state government system, uh, the other investments with industry, overseas engagement, there's about a billion dollars worth of research that's done in that time. And it's got to a level of maturity of sensing, communication, quantum computing and so on, where uh, that, that means that we're in a position to see if we can have a burgeoning quantum industry and then just to add on to that is Australia, most people think of Australia as a place where we uh, dig up lots of minerals and we make lots of farms and, and food and things like that. And we as a country need to diversify our economy. And so there's a great interest for the government moment, at the moment to see how can we use this amazing science and technology that's happening here and turn it into economic prosperity. So so that's where why we wanted to have a national strategy. It was to make sure that um, this is a an opportunity where we had big investment, mature to a certain point, been developing the workforce. And so, of course, we just wanted to see what was needed to make sure that the government's providing the, um, the leaders that they provide to, to make an industry happen so that we can all get to have the enjoyment of quantum technologies, which hopefully will be a good outcome for all of us. So obviously you've highlighted some of the strengths of Australia's uh, quantum science and technology. So what in particular will the strategy do that hasn't been possible up till now? How will it sort of galvanise things? Well, it's really interesting. As I mentioned, we're a country of um, eight states and territories and uh, and they all a lot of the research has been in the different states where they haven't necessarily uh, joined forces in a coordinated way. And so the first thing is to create that level of high coordination, uh, a one Australia approach 
just because the Commonwealth is bringing in that coordination. Um, the second is also to make sure that um, we've, we've got, you know, we've been funding the research for a long time and you can sort of just imagine um, funders sort of saying, oh, done that, done the quantum thing, now what's the next big thing on the horizon? So we need to make sure that we've got a thriving research and development um, continuing because it's not as though we've so solved all the science questions. We're you know, it's, it's sort of uh, building the tech while flying the plane sort of um, situation. And so, so we do need to keep investing in fundamental science and in the research to, to support that. And so that, that's part of it. The next is also making sure that you know this is this is an area which has quite a high need for infrastructure, different materials, that sort of thing. So we need to make sure that we've um, got the things in place for the infrastructure, uh, and of course keep on growing that workforce. We've done some work that suggested the workforce will be you know sort of sixteen to eighteen thousand people. Uh, we've graduated two and a half thousand PhDs in that time. But that's over a 23 year period. If, if so, you know, that multiplier effect of the workforce, especially when the workforce is um, going to be based in a, a lot of them will be tech, tech, you know, um, vet, um, vocational education and training skills, not necessarily university graduated. So, what are the skills that are needed so that we can make sure that we've got that pipeline of development in those, um, in that vet training um, line of education or post school education? And also, we've got to attract attract school kids to think quantum or, or, you know, sort of tech, deep tech jobs are their future. And I know in many countries, particularly developed countries around the world, attracting young people to do maths and science and, um, in the last years of high school is an issue. So what do we have to do to embed quantum in schools when it's not part of the regular curriculum? How can we sneaky and attract international people to come and live in Australia? It's a fantastic place to live. It's a very safe, cohesive society. It's beautiful weather, lovely food. Um, lovely society, a great infrastructure. So, you know, sort of trying to make sure it's an attractive place. And also for industries to come in and see it as a place. If they're going to set up in the Asia-Pacific region, why not come in and set it up in Australia in the right time zone that's got right resources? I guess the other is you've got to make sure you have the right standards and frameworks um, to support that. We need to have, you know, interoperability so that we don't end up with VH, VHS versus beta in our quantum technologies that, we're part of that national program to um, of standard setting, and then the last one, which because there's five different aspects we're focused on, but the last one is probably a bit different to most other quantum strategies. Australia has a really deep value system of ethics, integrity, um, trust, and so we wanted to make sure that um, the quantum uh, industry and the quantum technologies. The ones which were introduced in a way that doesn't create harm and that we're you know, sort of planning for unintended consequences and that we don't have a situation where people might be fearful or it creates, um, creates inequalities. And so having that sort of, uh, I guess, trusted, ethical, inclusive ecosystem, I think, is, is part of that because that's a very deep part of, a, of, of a, the way Australia likes to operate. So, so they're the sorts of things which... Uh, the government has identified as being things that um, they can control because industry is still industry. They need to do the investments, but there are things that government can do to just prop that up in terms of you know, foundational setups so that they can be successful. 
So, I mean, you mentioned some of the strengths of Australia. Those are quite clear in terms of quantum science and tech. What, what do you think are sort of the, the weaknesses compared to other other countries and other territories? Well, one of the big weaknesses for us is our, we are a long way from anywhere. So uh, most people say it's a 24-hour plane trip uh, to, to get to, the, to Australia. So, so I think that remoteness is one thing. Um, the other is uh, traditionally our research sector has not been good at translating um, their research. So that's changed a lot. And entrepreneurial uh, ideas coming through the particular university sector has grown significantly. And we're seeing, for example, just about every quantum professor in Australia has a startup company of some sort, which would have been unthought, unthinkable, you know, 10 years ago, but it now is becoming the everyday. So that's changing. And then I guess the other is, as I mentioned, we're a small country. And so that means our local business is, um, our, our, our um, local economy is small. That means that everything we do has to be, uh, if it's going to be successful, has to be done with an export mindset. So making sure that we've got the export control understanding in place, uh, that we're um, making sure that the uh, ability to uh, engage internationally is set up at the start is really critical. So that's probably one of our biggest um, roadblocks uh, is looking at how to make sure we engage. Knowing that, you know, quantum is huge, the opportunity is huge. It's not like it's a limited market. So making it clear where we can add value and uh, and doubling down on that, knowing that we'll be just one part of the global network of quantum capability. And, I mean, in terms of the strategy, do you have any measures of success that you'll use to judge in, you know, five, ten years' time whether it's worked? Yes. So um, so we've, we've actually set out ourselves a... Um, uh, a list of things you want to measure against, saying have we been successful or not, which is pretty unusual for a strategy to say uh, we're going to um, have an assessment on that. But we do want to, at the end, um, really see this as the realisation of a new industry in Australia and that we are, you know, at the moment there's only really about 16 countries in the world that have strong quantum capability. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, close to 200 countries in the world. That means that there's an opportunity for us to make sure we continue to do that and we don't drop our bundle um, so that, that you know, hold the nerve and the bold thinking. So that's a, that's, that's a measure of success. I guess, to be honest, what I would like is, you know, no one talks about nanotechnology anymore. I'm hoping that we get to a point where uh, quantum technologies get to the point where they're out every day and they're just integrated mainstream in our society, but having an extraordinary impact being able to do things such as, you know, solve intractable problems, improve logistics, um, maybe having sensor systems so that we do find um, the critical minerals we need for the energy transition because Australia's got, you know, some wonderful mineral deposits, but there are many still to be found and the volume of minerals we have to find and deliver uh, to be able to have batteries and solar panels and um, wind turbines and things is phenomenal. And if uh, so we, we still need to find those. So if we can find them more easily because it's actually quite hard to find mineral deposits when they're deeply buried. Um, so I think quantum is going to have a, a very quantum sensing will be important and of course secure communications, that sort of thing will be absolutely critical as cyber security becomes um, part of you know the way we have to threat, threats that we have to deal with. So so I think that's something and I guess for me the final one is um, that we actually have it so it's its adoption is one which uh, is 
um, absolutely not um, this creating problems for, for underrepresented groups. So quantum at the moment is very poor on um, attracting women. It's if I think around the world, it's about five percent. So we, we need to do seriously better on that. Our low socioeconomic area, and also in our case, our First Nations people, the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, that they see that quantum is part of their future as well because uh, it should become a um, a um, a general purpose technology and it's something therefore should be widely available, but we don't want to get to a point where it's the haves and have-nots. So if we achieve that, I'll feel like I've a bit of a success there. Right. And in terms of, I mean, you're not yourself a quantum physicist. I mean, obviously, some of your work probably touches on it. What what excites you about uh, quantum tech yourself? What what do you get? What, what thrills you about that? Well, for it? Yeah. Well, I, I think the thing which I really like about it is that it has the potential to make a huge difference, solving intractable problems. I, for example, at the moment, uh, if you're looking at everyone thinking about hydrogen as a uh, pathway for an energy transition. We have the problem that the um, the um, the fuel cells are only 50% efficient, and part of that is because we haven't got the catalyst working in an efficient way. So, if we're really going to get to a point where we have efficient fuel cells, we have to come up with new design catalysts. And one of the early applications of um, quantum computing will be being able to design new catalysts, which are able to really pin down quickly the design and then get that into practice faster. So that's, you know, that, that idea of being able to do things we just could not do before is always exciting. Superconductivity is a macroscopic quantum effect, and I, my, my research background is superconducting quantum interference devices or squids. So I guess from that perspective, I've um, been always really interested in um, measurement and uh, sensor systems. So. Uh, we know that there's real opportunities for us to be able to use sensing to be able to have better well-being for many people. I've talked about mineral exploration and things like that, uh, environmental monitoring, things where we might be able to get greater sensitivity, so get a better outcome. And I, I suppose the other thing is um, just looking at when you invest in smart people doing science at a fundamental level, they come up with amazing things that then lead to uh, opportunities which, you know, down the line will turn into applications and new technologies which can be game-changing. So just seeing that in, you know, that whole process of what humanity can do is amazing. And, um, and so that's why I get excited by quantum technologies. It's sort of bringing together anything I've ever thought about all my life. Right. I mean, do you ever worry with countries competing against each other, this idea of a sort of arms race in quantum tech where everyone's trying to sort of elbow each other out and trying to get a head start and beat, beat the others? I've heard a few people talk about that kind of thing. Does that, does that worry you? It does indeed, because I don't think it's... I mean, look, one thing is health, it's always good to have a bit of healthy competition. That, you know, gets people's juices going and it, you know that that's positive. If it's getting to arms race level where you think that this is going to be something where if I get our quantum computer first, we're going to be, you know, have world domination. That is, not, that is not where we want this technology to go through, uh, especially as I mentioned before, where you know, there's only a few countries in the world that will have quantum capabilities. And, it, and although it's some years away, it's not like a quantum computer, you know, fully error-corrected quantum computers on our doorstep. There's still a lot of work to be done. 
But I think, you know, this is one time where it would be great if we were able to use this as a pathway where, to be honest, no one country is going to be making a quantum computer on their own. There'll be lots of components from all around the world coming together. In fact, some of the ideas of getting, because error correction requires so many qubits, there's ideas that what we'll be doing is getting all these uh, noisy intermediate scale quantum computers linked up with a quantum network and so that you've actually got a world network to be able to get to that point where you have one quantum computer operating in the first stage as a network around the world. So that's a really different way of thinking of it. Whether that's you know physical reality or not remains to be seen, but there's sort of some of the ideas that, that have been talked about. And um, and I and to achieve that requires collaboration, cooperation. We're seeing, um, you know, there's um, there are uh, bilateral, well, there are multilateral relationships between countries. I know Australia has a um, a, 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 um, a bilateral rela relationship with the USA on quantum, and we're looking to do that with other countries with the, the AUKUS um, and the Quad. Uh, alliances which quantum is identified as an important technology. So hopefully that will not be seen as um, quantum in terms of um, a potential threat, um, but it's something as quantum as in how can we work together to be able to get to an endpoint faster because of the possibilities it can offer humanity. Well, it sounds an exciting time. So, yeah, th thanks for your time, Cathy. And, and one last thing, I mean, do you have any time for your own research? Do you still get in the lab or are you just busy? Because uh... on, on many levels, I haven't worked in the lab for a while, but my team from CSIRO, where I worked for 36 years, is still beavering away. And every now and then they let me come and visit and, uh, and get be in awe of what they're achieving. Plus also, uh, maybe when I finish this job, I can go back to the lab uh, and, and help them out and get in the way. But one of the things which I do love is being uh, the editor-in-chief of Superconductor Science and Technology. Uh, I've been in that role for some time now, and it really helps me keep my finger on the pulse. It's, I feel that that's my, my connection into the research community. I love being able to deal with uh, the problem papers and try and work with the authors to see how I can help them to get their science to a point where it is publishable. It's quite rewarding. And so that's that's the way I'm approaching research at the moment. But, you know, every day I'm learning things because I have to work from whether it's vaccines through to climate change, batteries, through to Great Barrier Reef, water quality. Um, I, I, I get to work on so many different aspects. I'm learning uh, and discovering things all the time. So I guess it's just a different way of doing science now. <laughs> All right, lovely. Well, thanks, Cathy. Great to talk to you. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for joining Physics World. That was Australia's chief scientist, Cathy Foley, in conversation with Mateen Durrani. There's more about Australia's quantum strategy on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Australia sets out a $1 billion national quantum strategy. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Kathy Foley, Ross Coleman, Margaret Harris, and Mateen Durrani for joining me this week. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when I'll be in conversation with the co-founder and CEO of a company that makes thin, 
Optical Systems Using Metamaterials. Physics World.